Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm Adam Proctor, as always. If my voice sounds a little bit different this week, that's because it is. Why, you might ask? Well, because I'm traveling. I'm currently sitting in a hotel room taping this intro for you guys. Why am I doing it while I'm traveling? I don't know. Am I an idiot? Do I just love you guys so damn much I can't leave you alone for a week? Or am I just that devoted to the movement and the discourse? Who knows? I don't know. Maybe I'm sick in the head. In any case, I've got no microphone for this intro, so it sounds like shit. Apologies in advance. I've got Nevedita Majumdar. We're going to talk about post-colonial theory and Marxism. I did this interview last week, so rest assured, the sound quality for the rest of the episode is as good as ever. Really quickly, if you haven't supported me on Patreon, please consider doing so. Uh, I've got a lot of fantastic subscribers and supporters, members of the Dead Pundit Society. I love you all. Uh, Your financial support and contributions keeps me going on a weekly basis, and it motivates me to do really silly-ass things, like record an episode while I'm practically on vacation. So yeah, thanks so much to all my Patreon subscribers. I love you all more than you will ever know. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet and you want to support what we're doing here, you like the politics, you like the mission, check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a subscriber. All right. If you're broke like me, like most of us, share my stuff on Twitter. You can find me at deadpundits. One word, at deadpundits. Retweet. Don't at me, bro. Share my stuff. Uh, Give me that thirst follow. Whatever you got to do, I appreciate it very much. Check me out on Facebook. You can search for me at the Dead Pundit Society. I post my episodes over there and occasionally put up some stupid dog memes or something like that. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring you the interview with Nevedita Majumdar. Her catalyst piece is fire. This is the third article that I have uh, featured on my show since that first issue of Catalyst dropped. The fine folks over there at Catalyst and Jacobin just made this article free. You can go on Catalyst's website and check it out. I'll link to it in the show notes. All right. One last thing before I bring you that interview. Friend of the show, Alex Jones, is going to give you a 60-second update on a really serious and pending environmental catastrophe. You're not going to want to miss this, folks. Make sure you're sitting down. Putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Turn, turn the, the friggin', friggin frogs, frogs gay. Serious crap. Gay. Frogs, friggin' frogs. Bam. It's not funny. I'm gonna say it real slow for you. Gay. Frogs.
Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is Nevada Majumdar. She is the author of a piece in the latest issue of Catalyst Journal. It's called Silencing the Subaltern, Resistance and Gender in Postcolonial Theory. She's also the author of a chapter in the Jacobin uh, series, ABCs of Socialism book that's come out in the past year. It's really fantastic. That chapter is called Is Socialism a Western Concept? In addition, she's an associate professor of English at John Jay College. Uh, she's also a secretary at the, the uh, Professional Staff Congress, which is the CUNY Union of Faculty and Staff uh, Union there. So, Nevada, thanks for joining us. It's quite a resume. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So how's the class struggle going over there at CUNY? It is going. We um, recently uh, finished bargaining a contract, which uh, was ratified uh, overwhelmingly. And that kind of ended last summer, and we are already forming another bargaining team for the next round of contract negotiations. So things are busy, as you said. I've been on the executive of a union uh, local myself, an academic union, and I know that you know as soon as one bargaining round is finished, you're always looking towards the next one. So keep your eyes on the prize. That's really exciting stuff that you're doing there at CUNY. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I want to start by talking about this catalyst piece. It's very theoretical, uh, but I think my audience really has a taste for theory. I got a lot of great feedback from uh, Cedric Johnson's piece and Vivek Chibber's piece as well. So this is going to be the third piece from the first issue of Catalyst Journal. And I think it makes a really important contribution about the limitations of what, what is called post-colonial theory for analyzing gender and resistance. So could you begin by by maybe kind of foregrounding why you wrote this piece. I think it's a, it's a very pointed kind of intervention. Maybe kind of give us that background story. Well, I work in the area of um, post-colonial studies because I um, entered into English literature as a discipline and um, my interests took me into a lot of non-Western literature and the dominant paradigm uh, within which non-Western literature was being studied. By the time I was doing my postgraduate work in the late 90s and thereafter was post-colonial studies. So um, that, you know, that's, that was my introduction to, uh, to the discipline. But very soon I found myself at odds with a lot of its premises, um, the way it was reading the texts. So um, over time, then I figured I needed to write a book to figure out what it is that I found problematic, both theoretically and politically. So when we say post-colonial theory, that might have a a very particular uh, resonance for some people. But for those who don't, they just sort of associate post-colonial theory with this sort of broad anti-colonial struggle, which could include the likes of Frantz Fanon, uh, Emrakal Cabral, even, you know, like those of like Che Guevara or whatever more commonly known types of figures. But post-colonial theory is a a kind of a niche area. So maybe tell us how post-colonial theory differentiates from the broad anti-colonial moment. The activist theorists you mentioned, um, you know, Cabral, Fanon, they are Definitely, um, you know, people that post-colonialists like to engage with. It's definitely part of the broad umbrella. But I think the story is a little bit bigger than that. And I um, came to post-colonial theory through the English literature, the you know discipline I was in. And I think that's important because it is within the confines of English departments that post-colonial theory was born. 
Um, And whatever its issues, and it has many, one thing that it needs to be uh, lauded for is the way it pried open English departments, erstwhile very traditional departments, only studying canonical texts of Western literature in a way so it would open, it, it opened it up to non-Western literatures in a big way. Um, it's, it's very difficult now to uh, go into not only, um, you know, English departments within elite universities, but you can go to a community college in any state and go into English department. It would be very difficult to get, uh, you know, a major in, in English or even take a few English courses without doing some of that work in uh, non-canonical and non-Western literatures. And that is something that post-colonial, um, post-coloniality or post-colonial studies or the discipline uh, made that, they, it made it happen. So that's, that's one good thing that definitely came out of that. Right. But it did not stay confined within English, within the English department. Very soon within academia, it migrated to other departments. It migrated to the social sciences, to anthropology, to political science, to history, to also Latin American studies in a big way. And it found, you know, very happy homes in those other departments. So there was an openness to this approach in um, in disciplines other than that of literature. And while it started out primarily with literary analyses, very soon it became a theoretical apparatus that was engaging with larger uh, social theoretical questions about feudalism, about capitalism, about colonialism, in not in a way that was satisfactory, not in a very um, fundamental way where it had a framework to understand where these ideas came from, but it had a take on them. It had a take on them, and that's why there was, you know, uh, this kind of an openness in other disciplines. Now, to understand why why that is, why there is this openness, and why it was, you know, um, something that has that became so dominant and so pervasive, I think one needs to go back a little bit into history and see the milieu in which it comes up. And I would say, you know, one needs to talk about sort of the milieu of the new left and um, the 80s, the, the Reagan-Thatcher era and the conservatism of the era was also the time when the new left emerges. So it's a very interesting time. On the one hand, you have this thorough conservatism coming from above. On the other hand, it's also a time of a lot of social movements, a lot of social unrest again on a variety of issues, right? Mm-hmm. On gender, anti-racism, anti-war. It's you know the time of Vietnam protests. People are talking about the Cuba revolution, there is decolonization in Africa. And this is also a time, if you remember, when universities became much bigger, much more expansive institutions than they ever were. They were bringing in people in the U.S., I'm talking about U.S. universities, they were uh, large enough to now bring in the middle classes and the working classes. So the very character of the university changes. And between the social movements going up, the expansiveness of the university, uh, its 
you know, people of color, working classes coming in there, there is a general sort of change in character towards a more left liberal kind of uh, ethos that that comes to dominate universities. And this is where the new left finds its home. And these were the people, the, the academics of the new left were, you know, they were the 60s radical radicals. They were radicalized. But then somehow the futility of the times is what makes its mark on them. They don't want to give up on the radicalism. So it's it's the mishmash of the two. On the one hand, giving up on the possibilities of the of revolutionary possibilities. On the other hand, an attachment to radicalism. Again, if you look at the broader sort of historical milieu, um, like I said, there are all these social movements, all these you know progressive things that's going on within culture. But also the time when concerted attack on the working classes, unions are being decimated, mm-hmm. right? So the power of the working class was completely broken at this time. So the the contradictory uh, character of the new left pretty much encapsulates the broader historical milieu. And so that's when you think of, you know, um, the theories that come up at this time, post-structuralist theories, it's similar that there is a lot of radicalism there, but there is also an innate conservatism. Again, very much reflecting, very much mirroring the time. And post-coloniality comes out of this. It's uh, very influenced by post-colonial, by postmodernism and post-structuralism. So it's very much, uh, you know, uh, of the same cloth, so to speak. Yeah. So you write, uh, there's two passages in the beginning of your article. I think that it's quite telling. I love this history. This is a really important uh, contextualization of how we got to this sort of uh, conjuncture that that post-colonial theory sort of picks up and runs with. Because we don't understand that we risk sort of naturalizing that picture in a way that you, as you rightly point to, there's nothing natural or essential about it. It's, it's a historical uh, result. Right. Uh, So you write, what makes the post-colonial turn especially important is that it foregrounds precisely those forms of agency and political identity that have tended to remain at the periphery of Marxist and liberal considerations, gender, sexuality, and race in particular. Whereas these forms of oppression have only recently become analytical foci within the traditional left. They have been central to post-colonial theory from its inception. And so that's the good part, right? So in, in your, your, the, your historicization, historicization there, you offer that there, there was like concern because of the democratization of the university and the sort of like social upheaval of the 1960s and 70s. There was a concern for these kind of uh, marginal groups. But what happened was that there was something tragic in, a, in, a, in the post-colonial turn there. You write on, the, on the, uh, the first page of your article, on elite university campuses, the concepts associated with this theoretical stream have increasingly displaced the more traditional vocabulary of the left, particularly among younger academics and students. So while it was uh, the post-colonial turn involved uh, a, a new attention to marginalized uh, agencies, it sort of substituted the traditional vocabulary of the left. And you have a really good kind of a critique of that. So could you lay that out for us? So, you know, like I said, it's a discipline which wants to lay claim to radicalism, but at the expense of class analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's the, that's the sacrifice that it makes to remain relevant, to remain, to, uh, carve out its niche in academia, to remain part of this academic establishment. What it does is it, it cuts out the most threatening part of social theory, which is class analysis. 
and carves out another kind of theory, which then foregrounds these other sorts of um, identity politics around uh, sexuality, gender, etc. Now, mm-hmm. often, you know, Marxists are attacked for um, not giving these uh, these other issues as much importance. So I just want to say that all this is extremely important. As a socialist, as a Marxist, all kinds of uh, injustices, any kind of indignity should bother us immensely, and we should battle against everything, any kind of injustice, any kind of discrimination. What postcoloniality and other, uh, you know, other theories like this they do is they question the primacy of class analysis, and that is a problem. So I think that's, you know, that's what you are reading, um, reading in that in those paragraphs in in foregrounding uh, battles around gender, around um, around race. It sort of erases the importance of class. And once you do that, those battles themselves, the ones that it tries to do justice to, uh, it can't do that because you, and this, you know, maybe I can return to this. Mm-hmm. You cannot be an anti-racist without undertaking class analysis. It just, it would be, a, you can be, but it would be very hollow and impoverished. So that's half the sacrifice there. So let's get into the nitty gritty of the article, um, not to get overly uh, carried away in textual analysis, but I think, uh, you know, you see this on Twitter and Facebook and in person as well, talking about, you know, the intersections of race and class and gender. And is it just, you, you can really get yourself into a wormhole really quickly. And I think mm-hmm. y- your, your notion of the primacy of class alongside gendered and racial oppression is really important here. And so to order, in order to unpack that in the way that post-colonial theory misses right. that, let's get to the nitty-gritty of the argument here in this piece. So the first theorist you take up is uh, Ranajit Guha. Uh, Guha has um, a, a very um, influential piece called uh, uh, Chandra's Death uh, that's sort of in the post-colonial canon. Mm-hmm. Um, can you sort of lay out the, the narrative, the story that Guha tells there, and, and and what his takeaway is and maybe what he might have missed. Okay, sure. I want to do that, but just, you know, want to say something, and maybe again we can return to that. You know, Marxists often talk about the primacy of class, and mm-hmm. it should not be a claim that we are asserting. We should be able to show it, because it's not enough to say class is more important than race. Right, it's important right. to show it, and you know I do do that. I try to do that at least textually in this article and also in other pieces. But I think that's something that you know it's it's very important to keep in mind why it is so. Um, and if you'll allow me, if if I can speak for one more minute about that before going to Chandra's death. Sure, by all means. Yeah, let's let's okay. let's uh, put that question to the side because I think you're really you're really uh, coming on to something here. If you have a better way to right. illustrate it, let's let's run with it. Yeah. So no, I was just as you were saying, I was just thinking that you know I hear myself talking about primacy of class, but when I hear somebody else, my first question because I'm trying to always be a critical thinker is if I'm if I was not a Marxist, why would I agree to that? Why is class primary? I mean, that's just something that you say, but why do we why do we have to buy into it? Um, you know, earlier, like I was saying that you can't be an um, anti-racist without undertaking class analysis. Let's take one example. And it 
kind of speaks to uh, race, but mostly also to other kinds of identities and to class. Mm-hmm. Um, during the presidential election, uh, Clinton, I think, once said that um, when she was getting a lot of heat for um, Bernie and you know not talking about the economy enough, etc., right? Right, right. So she said something along the lines that, oh, I, if I have to break up the banks, I will. But what's that going to do for race relations? I'm not, you know, it's not a, like exact quote. I'm paraphrasing. Right. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, it was very clear. Something about breaking up the banks um, isn't going to help uh, black folks in the country. Or something right. Like exactly. That, yeah. Exactly. You know, I think about it and that to me uh, encapsulates exactly the problematic thinking of people who try to do anti-racism without class. Um, Yes, breaking up banks will do more for anti-racism than anything I can imagine right now. Right. Who lost their homes in the the downturn? I mean, the vast majority of racialized people lost their their homes with these shady mortgages that they were sold. Exactly, exactly. So when you think of the banks, when you think of, you know, the havoc that kind of a system wreaks on people of color in terms of jobs, in terms of education. I mean, education, I mean, I could just, you know, speak about education for a long time. Like what what property tax, the school school funding, depending on property taxes, does for poor people and especially people of color. Um, How do you go about addressing any of that without looking at the system, without looking at class, without looking at capitalism? So, again, the idea of being radical without addressing any of this, it's not that you're not doing justice to poor poor white people. You're not doing justice to poor people, period. Uh, overwhelming majority of, of whom are of color. So it's not, you know, it's not an either or. There is no way of doing meaningful analysis of any kind of inequality without addressing class. It, it reminds me of a, of the military's um, pithy little phrase, uh, a surgical strike, right? As though a mm. bomb, as though a bomb could take out only the bad guys, right? right, as the, right. And, and it's almost as speaking as though a, a social policy could only help uh, yeah. racialized people or something right, like that exactly. without also addressing their yeah. lived conditions of impoverishment and absolutely. inequality. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. <laughs> so back to Guha. No, this is good because I really, yeah. I think it's important to foreground this argument um, mm-hmm. and, br- and sort of bring it home because yeah, we are talking, we will be talking a little bit about kind of, uh, you know, uh, academic debates and stuff like that, but it's incredibly relevant uh, to the political confusion, I think, that, that yes. exists in some yeah. parts of the left. Right, right, right. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think we really need to keep hammering that home. <laughs> it's very important. Um, so Guha, right? Your question was, what, what's the um, argument in his piece, Chandra's death? Yes, Chandra's death. Uh, just what the argument, and it, I think because it really gets at a crucial erasure, we might uh-huh. say, uh, and, and a substitution. And it's interesting because you're, you're sort of uh, accusing the post-colonial theorists of a certain type of erasure. Which right. is interesting because it's typically the Marxists that get blamed right, uh, for right, right. erasing uh, certain aspects. So I think it's really oh, important. Right, it's right, really interesting right. to lay out. Yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, Guha is an interesting person to read. He's a meticulous historian. And um, 
what I can say about some of the other uh, post-colonial theorists, he's a pleasure to read. He writes very well. Mm-hmm. He writes clearly, lucidly. It's, you know, beautiful writing. So um, in that article, uh, Chandra's death, he picks up a small um, incident in 19th century Bengal and talks about it, about what happened to uh, to this woman, Chandra, and how she died. It's an unfortunate death while um, her sister was administering these drugs to her to induce an abortion um, because she'd had an illicit relationship with her brother-in-law. And if uh, the facts of it had come out, then um, Chandra's family and the entire clan uh, would have had to suffer a lot materially and socially. And they belonged to the to an extremely impoverished subcaste in a village. And for them, maintaining the, you know, the social uh, cohesiveness, the lines of social decorum were extremely important. So um, Guha's point in bringing out the story is to critique dominant discourses of Primarily, I shouldn't say primarily, but first of um, the law, because when he goes back to the archives, this is in British India, and the the evidence of uh, of this incident in the archives is um, as a it's it's a crime narrative because Chandra's relatives were tried for murder. So yeah, for this this botched this botched abortion, which resulted in uh, Chandra's death. Exactly. So then he correctly says that the law has no access to the actual human experiences, what he calls the the small voice of history, the sobs and whispers of these uh, subaltern people, that it completely misses on the human dimension and frames it as a crime narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's the law, which is, of course, colonial law, uh, looking at uh, human history especially subaltern history through a certain prism. And then he also um, castigates dominant historiography of different kinds, both colonial and liberal, for completely ignoring these kinds of histories because it does not fit their paradigm. Again, like I said, he uses the phrase small voice of history. So then Guha takes it on himself to flesh out the story and in this story, with whatever you know material he had, whatever evidence he had, he tries to tell a story of patriarchal resistance in what happened to Chandra. Um, so, in my reading of it, I say you know the history that Guha produces is actually very valuable. It's it is very good history, but the the, the theoretical um, conclusions are completely mistaken. There is no real uh, resistance here that he's looking for. And this is where he, he begins by blaming dominant discourses for imposing their ideas, their uh, presumptions on actual histories. And he ends up doing the same, imposing the post-colonial, notion, post-colonial sort of privileged notions of agency and resistance on these actors where there's something very different going on. You know, it's not a question of whether they were heroic or unheroic. That's not the point. You know, people live their lives. They, the, the, the kind of choices that Chandra and her relatives had were all terrible. And they did the best they could. And it was an awful outcome. So, of course, I mean, there is no blame there. More, I mean, 
more than that, I should say, you know, whatever they did was it could, you know, one can definitely see something very moving, very, you know, even one could use the word heroic over there. But it is not what as socialists we would want to call resistance because it does not challenge patriarchy. And when you do not challenge the system, it does not fall within, uh, you know, it does not fall within the umbrella of resistance. Once you cross that line, it's really, uh, it's, it's a slippery slope. Right. So it's not to say, I mean, you're not, uh, you know, wasting your, your time here writing an article denigrating uh, Chandra or anyone in Chandra's position. It's just to say that we shouldn't impose uh, this heroic act of resistance onto this uh, narrative where where it, it doesn't belong because it, it it denatures the the concept of resistance and it turns it into something that is really kind of uh, politically innocuous in a way. Right, right, right. I mean, if you you know again, um, if you look at the article, I laid out that um, my idea could not be further from trying to denigrate, you know people who are actually faced with these awful choices. I mean, if one goes that way, then one is lost. I think they were definitely victims of a first of awful feudal system where they were as poor as they were. And on top of that, somebody like Chandra is definitely further oppressed because of being a woman. So it, it could not be their situation could not, one cannot imagine a worse predicament. Um, and within that predicament, you know, the family got together, they tried to do the best they could, and what happened, happened. So there is obviously no denigration there. And, you know, one needs to study what happened there to, to, you know, come up with ways of understanding history. That's all there is to it. But again, when people act in a way that does not question the choice sets that's given to them, it is whether they choose A or B within the system, then that's not resistance. You have to be uh, resisting the the conditions that create that system in the first place. That's you know that's the critique there. Right, and I think it's really important. You have to know a little something about the uh, cultural studies and that type of field, and the and, and you have to know what direction it went in the in the '90s in particular uh, to understand really the kind of the root of your argument <laughs> uh, in the academic discourses, particularly through the '90s and even into the aughts. And even sometimes today, unfortunately, uh, these scholars write in a way where they're all they always kind of try to uh, dig up these hidden resistances from various agents. And the idea there is that these resistances uh, show how daily life is transgressive um, in, in the way that we sort of enact and perform our lives and that we should really, we shouldn't bury that. We should kind of hold that up and cherish that as maybe even like the form of resistance par excellence. Um, and while, while I don't want to certainly don't want to denigrate that entire idea, I think as you mentioned in your article, it's very dangerous when we raise that up to political resistance par excellence. Uh, would you agree with that and, and maybe elaborate on that a little bit? No, I completely agree with that. I mean, look, we live in an inhumane system, right? You know, I mean, Chandra and her family were unfortunate in greater ways than we are. But even now, the system's extremely inhumane. It, you know, doesn't allow people to have basic securities of, of work, 
of healthcare, of housing. Um, people are constantly struggling. And within that system, very often, and in fact, the most sensitive of, of us, um, do what we can. You know, if, if, you, know, if you, you see a documentary about the meat industry and you become vegetarian, I mean, kudos to you. Good for you. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if uh, you can afford to and eat organic, great. Um, if you can, if you want to um, avoid certain companies because of their specially egregious um, uh, methods, great. Um, all that is fine. People do what they can. And some people completely opt out and, you know, they don't want to be part of the corporate grid and they want to go, you know, paint graffiti or uh, like live in a farm or whatever. All that is fine. People do what they have to. This is, you know, these. this is the fallout of a terribly alienating and inhumane system. That said, as socialists, we also have to talk about genuine resistance because none of those acts, none of those acts are going to challenge the system in any way. Socialism, so uh, sorry, um, capitalists do not mind your going green or going organic or some of you opting out. They don't care. They really don't. It's quite profitable in some uh, ways. In some ways, it can be profitable. And even if, even if, you know, there are some losses, like, you know, you do some small boycotts here and there, the system is strong enough and robust enough to absorb all of that. You are not challenging the system by doing that. So it is not blaming individuals. It is not even blaming small groups, but it is blaming theorists who say that that is the limit of opposition. Because history also is a history of organized struggle, which changes the system. To say to take the system for granted is problematic. So that's, you know, that's where we are. Well said. So we're tying in this sort of hyper theoretical argument with real uh, life political consequences. I love this. This is great. That's why I like this article. Like I said, if you read it on face value, it seems sort of like hyper theoretical, uh, but it has a lot of really important resonances with our political struggle as socialists today. So let's jump uh, to another theorist here, Gayatri Spivak. Uh, she is quite the superstar in the academic world, um, but not only in the academy. I've recently, I'll leave the names out to protect those involved because I don't want to impute motives, but uh, there was recently a reading group that I heard about that took up her famous article, Can the Subaltern Speak? And it was a socialist reading group, and they read this article as a way to sort of interrogate gendered oppression and uh, the ability or inability uh, for women uh, to st- and gendered folks to speak. So... It's a big article. Uh, it covers the, the 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 full realm topics of colonialism, imperialism, even like Deridian semiotics for those who are sort of nerding out on this. Uh, it talks about the practice of sati. Uh, we can talk a little bit about that. Um, and throughout the piece, you know, at the end of the very end of the piece, uh, Spivak very famously sort of says, you know, no, the subaltern actually can't speak. So maybe tell us what that means and what the consequences are. Okay, that's a tall order, but <laughs> it's a it's a it's it's a it's it's a massive yeah. article. But let's let's try to let's try to distill the argument into its most sort of like essential aspects, and then maybe you can lay out your critique of that. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll go out on a limb and maybe um, you know offend some of your um, listeners, and I do not credit her very much for this article. Look, it's you know. <laughs> 
theorists are entrusted with the task of taking on hard subjects and uh, as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, if people have real problems in understanding an argument, reasonably intelligent people, then the problem is not with the intelligent people. I do not believe that. I be- And I, I've seen this over and over uh, when I was in grad school and amongst grad students, there is a lot of blaming of oneself if one cannot understand Spivak and other such theorists that, yeah, we are not smart enough. Right, if right, you right. are, you know, if you're in grad school, I take it you are intelligent enough to understand an argument when you see one. And if you are not getting that after reading something four times, the problem may not be with you. It's probably with the writer, yeah. So Spivak, for those who don't know, is known for having this kind of deconstructionist, this hyper obscurantist uh, style where it's it's almost impossible to pin down exactly what it is that she is or is not saying, uh, which gives the text a whole lot of wiggle room. Uh, They would argue productive wiggle room, but we would argue nobody knows what the hell they're saying. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's it's you know it's it's also a way of dodging uh, responsibility for saying Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. But you know if if I were to um, if I were at gunpoint (laughs) asked to describe (laughs) the article in a nutshell. Oh um, God, I couldn't imagine anything more terrifying. But yes, what 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 would what what would it go? How would it go like? (laughs) Okay, so here goes. Um, I think that what she's doing here is drawing attention to um, what she calls the sanctioned ignorance amongst uh, continental theorists, with the exception of Derrida, of the third world, especially of the third world subaltern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she talks about uh, Foucault, especially over there, but also other theorists. And that they do not quite engage their their theoretical apparatus or even their empirical knowledge does not uh, engage with with that part of the world. And um, the capitalist system obviously is now a world system. So to the extent that they're ignoring the vast parts of the world on which the system depends, there is a problem with the theory. And I think she has a point there. She definitely has a point there. Um, And then she says, but it's not just Western theory. When you move to, um, you know, to the third world and uh, there then uh, she takes up the the case of widow immolation in in, um, 19th century India and um, talks about that practice and then looks at the hegemonic texts of Hindu theology on on this particular practice. And then... um, what she's saying is that there is a commonality between, you know, high theory in the West and this kind of native high theory in that they both um, leave out the interests and the experiences of the subaltern, especially the subaltern woman in this case. Mm-hmm. So tell us what that, that subaltern's a little piece of jargon that some folks might not be familiar with. Tell us exactly, well, if you can if you can possibly tell us exactly, if that's possible at all. Tell us what you think she means by subaltern. Well, she, you know, she, the, uh, the, um, the term subaltern comes from Gramsci, but, and mm-hmm. um, uh, the subaltern studies people pick it up and they work with that. And it is, you know, they include more than just the working class, they include also the peasantry here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it's kind of a lumpen proletariat for the Marxologists out there as a sort of a lumpen proletariat, uh, the kind of cast off the underclasses. Is, is that is that a yeah, fair? I think you could say that. I think you could say that. And um, Spivak, I mean, that's, you know, don't want to go into that trajectory, but there are in some very convoluted way, she tries to make, say, a middle class woman also a subaltern and how that works is and I think it's completely unjustifiable. Uh, but I don't want to, you know, get into the nitty gritty of that. To go back to the central idea of the article. So then it says, okay, so there are these two uh, schools of theory coming out of these, you know, two locations of the West and the East, but in both cases, they represent the interests of the upper class and offer their patriarchal. I would even say, you know, leaving details aside, so far so good, fine, that's good, right? Um, then, of course, then the, you know, the big move, because honestly, great, but there is nothing that original here. Any Marxist would say the same, right? Sure, sure, um, so there is nothing that original here. All of the anti-colonial theorists that we mentioned right, earlier in the, exactly. the, the show uh, would yeah. have said that for sure. Would I mean, have they said made that. a living on, on, on writing and uh, railing against that that, uh, that right, absence. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, there's this whole anti-enlightenment thing that the post-colonialists have going, and they would say some of the anti-colonialist thinkers subscribe to enlightenment ideas. But again, I digress. So after, you know, problematizing these two kind of theoretical frameworks, then she says that nobody can actually quite capture what the gendered subaltern experiences. It is something that simply cannot be captured because, again, it's a tautology. The moment you give voice to that subaltern, they do not remain a subaltern. Mm -hmm. So if they speak, then they are not subaltern. And hence, in other words, the subaltern is, by definition, silent, has been silenced and remains silent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, again, like I said, it's in very broad brushstrokes. That's the argument that any kind of recovery effort uh, that one might undertake to, uh, to get to the voice of the subaltern will be contaminated because you're coming from somewhere with some kind of a perspective and then the perspective will subsume whatever the experiences of the of the underclasses. Right. So it's a result of the linguistic turn, you might say, this this yes. obsession with language and the ability of language to convey the unique experiences of certain classes and uh, of, of folks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And you know, to me, it's a it's a profoundly conservative piece because what. What it ends up erasing, which is what you were asking earlier about Guha, and you know this is especially true of Spivak, is the actual voice of the subaltern. And hence I title my catalyst piece, Silencing the Subaltern, that you guys are the ones who are silencing the subaltern because the subalterns have spoken That's over right. and over again. They're shouting at the top of their lungs and, and these exactly. theorists have their fingers in their ears. Yeah. And they're like, what? I can't hear you. Speak up. Oh, the, you know, like it's, it's almost, it's a comical uh, image that, yeah. that, that and, brings you to know, mind. Absolutely. And one is not just talking about, you know, industrial strikes all over the third world. One is not just talking about peasant rebellions, you know, um, in, in several countries, as, but especially in India where, uh, 
you know, Spivak like trains her eye there. But because she trains her eye there, I mean, I talk about one particular peasant rebe uh, rebellion in 1946 in, in, in South India, in, in Telangana, which was led by the Communist Party of India, where women, peasant women, actively participated, not as like, you know, people who were supporting, but they were on the field. They were on the field with guns. You know, they were the ones who were armed to the teeth and they were strategizing, they were organizing and they were fighting. And here's the other kicker. There is, there are enough texts and archives on this particular struggle as there are of others. So it's not like Spivak has an excuse of not knowing about this. He definitely knows about this. So why not, why, why not talk about the actual struggles of the, of, you know, of subaltern women and, instead of, you know, declaring with a flourish that they can't speak. Right. The idea is that there's something about those women on the field of battle with guns. Uh, in, in one of the pieces that you critique, I believe it's the Homie Baba uh, piece, mm -hmm. where he sort of imputes very patriarchal um, ideas onto these militant uh, Marxist uh, women to say that they're only taking up these struggles because that's what their husband would want them to do. That they couldn't possibly really believe this stuff. That they introduce post-colonial theory as a way to get inside the soul of the woman. Right? Um, I think you... St uh, no, I don't think you're thinking of Baba. I think you might be thinking of um, the story that I analyze of, Spiva, um, of uh, Mahashweta Devi, which... Yes, yes, sorry about that. Yeah. Yes. Right, yes. right. So that's, uh, I think that's what you're talking about. And that story is specifically of, uh, you know, of a 19-year-old yes, woman, yes, indigent yep. woman, uh, who is an armed revolutionary. And it is, it is about what happens to her when she's captured, uh, the story of one night when she is serially raped all night and then what happens. And the entire story, Spivak reduces to one gendered act of rebellion rather than looking at it in its entire context. Right. Well said. It seems like, you know, just in a broad takeaway, we can get to the more uh, folks should read this piece. I, I recognize we're sort of dealing with it in, a, in an intense level of specificity. It might seem a little bit um, difficult to follow if you haven't read the piece, uh, but you should really read the piece and uh, come back and listen to this. But let's let's move to some more general sort of themes that, that come from from the arguments, uh, the more theoretical arguments in the piece. It seems like to me with Spivak, let's be let's I was being very charitable to Spivak earlier. Let's be let's let's go hard here. Uh, it seems like, you know, this is another example of how middle class people, upper middle class people sort of ruin oppression when they take it up in their own frameworks. Spivak seems wants to silence the, the inclination of militant radical women throughout history and sort of impute the, this kind of female mystique rather. Um, and I like that, that bit of the, the article. Maybe take us up there. The way they talk about gendered rebellion, right? Right, right. Gendered rebellion and, and how, that's, how yeah, there's a certain uh, substitution and erasure. Right, right. It's, it's very, very disturbing. I mean, um, I knew I had problems with these pieces, but... Once I started looking at them very closely, I found this other angle of, you know, a strange throwback to a pre-feminist sort of era of feminist mystique that they are upholding over there. And, um, and, and the commonality between Guha and Spivak on, on that register. Um, 
you know, I wonder about that, that why does this happen? Because going back again to what we were talking about earlier, when you want to be a radical, mm-hmm. but you also eschew collective struggles, right? Because somehow collective struggles, you become dupes and then you start believing in some theory and then you get cut off from real experiences, etc. When you subscribe to that mode of thinking that collective struggles are inherently problematic, but you still want to be radical, then this is what happens. Then you fall back on these old tropes. Uh, yeah, you know, right. I mean, I think that's that that's that's the it's a fallout of that. So if you you know if you look at um, the last part of Can the Subaltern Speak, where uh, Spivak is talking about the experience of this woman who committed suicide and she was menstruating at the time that she was that she committed suicide, right. and Spivak you know draws out all sorts of conclusions that don't really, I mean again again I go very uh do very close textual analysis in that article so if you're interested you know read the article i don't want to go very much into it but mm-hmm. the point is that very much is made out of uh out of you know biological actions out of uh defining gender only through the biological and the domestic sphere both in guha and in and in spivak um that the idea that women can only rebel through their bodies, you know, right, that the right. rebellion has to be something that is that is indisputably gendered and not generalizable. It gives, you know, it does so much injustice to the kind of struggles that women have been involved in, both of, uh, you know, along uh, lines of gender and lines of class and caste and other things. So it's it's just a big lie. But what is curious is how they fall back on these ideas of biology, which, you know, goes back to um, to a central tenet, which feminism opposed that biology is destiny. Looks like they're going back to biology. So it's, it's really shocking. Right. So in trying to resuscitate a more on the ground, essential notion of, say, gender and race, they fall back to these uh, kind of strange, as you say, pre-feminist, pre-racial politics, uh, pre-racial uh, liberation politics style mm-hmm. arguments, where where the uh, you know, as you say, this woman in the story that you mentioned is sort of uh, involved in um, a, a failed uprising uh, attempt, a failed assassination attempt. Um, it's an anti-colonial struggle mm-hmm. narrative. And in the hands of this post-colonial theorist, it's turned into this biological narrative. Right. And, and so right. there's this weird silencing going on. Right. There's this erasure. And, and these women are crying out about the political conditions, the political, right. economic, social conditions of their time. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. They're grabbing weapons. And yet all these post-colonial theorists can interpret from that boisterous, <laughs> obvious action is, oh, you have these biological tendencies that, that, right. uh, exactly. that illustrate your true womanhood. I mean, that's that's really offensive. Um, 
I like that that piece of the article. And so that's why I think it's a little bit disturbing to me when I see particularly socialists turning to articles like the subaltern speak to try to understand the unique experience of women. And it's not to say that you shouldn't read things, all types of things. Uh, we can learn a lot from anything, even if you disagree with it. Um, so let's turn to the positive picture here for the end of the show. How might socialists deal with patriarchal domination that is very real and very present in people's lives while avoiding some of the theoretical pitfalls that you lay out in your essay? Like I said, I want to begin again by saying as socialists, we, str- we struggle against all forms of injustice. Right. And, uh, you know, it's I somehow managed to um, get this question whenever I'm giving a talk or something. Um, is class more important than race? What comes first? Did you say, um, uh, you know, race doesn't uh, matter? It's so uh, awful, right? Why are right. we doing this? I think it's intersectionality that does this. I it guess, throws a yeah. bunch of concepts and it kind of, you know, we're supposed to place them in order or something. I don't know. I mean, they're they're very abstract concepts in and of themselves. And so we we become we become kind of uh, slave to the to the conceptual apparatus and maybe we just should scrap it all together and start anew. So anyway, that's my feeling. Sorry for that aside. No, no, no. I, you know, I get it. Um, I, I, again, I will say it as a socialist, I do think the material exploitation has primacy. Yes. I'm very unapologetic about that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in a country which is very, very poor and, you know, I saw poverty around me, and I have no doubt that when you when you go talk to somebody who has been deprived, you know, of material basic material resources, what is paramount that they need? What what you know paramount need for human beings is the material. Once you have the material, then comes other things. There is, I mean, I will never, uh, you know, shy away from saying that. Um, does it mean other things do not matter? I mean, I think one has to be uh, nuts to say that that doesn't matter. And, you know, as a woman myself, as a person of color, I certainly have experienced and I know those other kinds of, you know, discriminations and indignities and in different ways that they come. And one takes positions against on them. Of course one does. But here's the other thing, you know, I don't know. I mean, the way I was politicized, the way I was radicalized, I understood politics as identifying with people who are underprivileged, who have been victimized, and organizing them and working with them. To me, that still is the understanding of politics. It is not primarily about oneself. It is because so often this you know, the impetus in in university politics is about oneself. Who am I? What am I? How did I get, you know, marginalized here or there? Sure, these are bad things. And, you know, you, you take a position and you do what you can. But if that is all that you do as a political being, then I'm sorry, it's not doing much at all. It's not. Because it, politics also has to be about identification. It's not just about identity. Um. The interplay between, you know, class and um, and other kinds of um, other kinds of inequalities, the interplay is already there. You know, like we were talking um, earlier. I mean, when 
you know, when you look at the de facto school segregation in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's very racialized. But if you look at the system that su- sustains it of property taxes, it is a capitalist system that sustains it. How are you going to address, you know, the, the racism that, that sort of uh, nurtures it without attacking the, uh, the, the system that fuels it? So I, I don't see how one can do one without the other. And um, so, yeah, so one, one, one takes on these battles while keeping one's conceptualization clear about what drives what. And within capitalism, it is the primary driver of inequality. If we lose sight of that, then we won't be doing justice to any of the battles, not just class battle, but any battle. Right. So it seems like coming back to the piece to wrap it up, it seems like, you know, post-colonial theory originated in this moment of backlash against Marxism as grand theory, as this master narrative. And these master narratives are inherently wrong. They miss out the uh, particular experiences of individuals. And therefore, we must get rid of them for more particularistic accounts. And you seem to argue quite persuasively in your piece that actually these sort of post-colonial narratives and other post-structuralist narratives and even a lot of narratives like uh, that, that are structured around intersectionality, they themselves are just as much master narratives as any sort of Marxist uh, anti-capitalist critique. Would you say, would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think that's something that, uh, you know, I try to show in that article how um, these post-colonial theorists, these sort of canonical post-colonial theorists um, fall prey exactly to, um, to, the, to the crime that they attribute to um, other theoretical paradigms, which is having this grid of what they call resistance and agency, which I argue is really not re- resistance or agency, but whatever it is that they have, um, whatever their definition is, and then imposing that on these actors, on these um, historical actors. And, you know, in terms of in terms of this kind of orthodoxy, yeah, all theories, all political theories are susceptible to that, to uh, not being able to see actual experiences, struggles outside of whatever one's framework is. All I think all theories are susceptible to that. Mm-hmm. But the openness, I think, is directly proportional to how much those, how much the proponents of a particular theory are engaged in actual struggles. Ah, so the more you are engaged in struggles, the more you are confronting power, the more you would be open and the likelihood of you challenging your theories, it goes up. But if you remain within universities and you remain within these small like-minded organizations and if the, the, the extent of your challenging dominant frameworks is questioning your peer about why you were not allowed to speak first, you're not challenging anything. So, well, I mean, you know, harsh but true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, no theory and certainly not Marxism. Marxism definitely has its blind spots. Every theory has its blind spots, but the, right. the way to challenge that, the way to forge new solidarities is through struggle, is through challenging power. Be Get out on the street and organize, and then we'll come up with whatever theory there is. 
Very well said. And I, you know, I was going to ask the sort of million dollar question to wrap up the interview, but you beat me to it because that's, that's as good as it gets. Uh, Nevada, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I look forward to, uh, uh tracing, uh, you know, your, your work at, with the CUNY Union, uh, Professional Staff Congress, because, uh, you know, struggle is where it's at. Maybe I can have you on uh, in, in a couple of months' time to talk about your next round of bargaining. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week. Special thanks to Nevada Dimajum Dar. She really broke some important theoretical and strategic stuff down for us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I learned a lot. It helped me kind of clarify some of my positions uh, on those topics. So if you haven't checked me out on Patreon, please do so. Patreon.com slash deadpundits. I promise when all of you are subscribers, I will no longer do these pitches and annoy the shit out of you. So subscribe today and shut me up. Uh, check me out on Twitter at Dead Pundits. Uh, got another show coming at you next week. It's going to be a good one. On the way out, before you press stop on your podcast app, I've got a song from one of my Twitter followers. Unbeknownst to her, I'm going to feature her music just like I did a couple weeks ago uh, with a different band. This is at Stuntcasting. You can find her on Twitter at Stuntcasting. She's out of Cincinnati, Ohio, according to her Twitter bio. Uh, This is her cover. It's called Moonless. It's a Vassal's cover. It's kind of a creepy synth kind of thing she's got going on there. And uh, her name is Ann Driscoll. I'll link to her Bandcamp page in the show notes. And you should all check her out because her music's kind of trippy and it's good. And I kind of like it. it. puts me in a good groove. So this is at Stunt Casting covering a Vassal's track, Moonless. Till next week, Dead Pundit, out. Yeah.